The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Psych Up Live with your host, Dr. Suzanne Phillips. This is the show that brings you a psychological perspective on common and current life issues. Here is Dr. Suzanne Phillips. Welcome. I'm Suzanne Phillips, and thanks for joining me again on Psych Up Live. Today we have a fascinating show on intuition. We're asking, how do we make the best use of intuition? Have you ever said anything like this? My gut tells me to go with the first real estate agent. There's something about her I trust. Or, uh, despite her credentials, I don't think the kids like this babysitter. They don't even want to sit near her. Or, why do I continue to think that the guy who sounds like he's going to be the right one always ends up the wrong one? We are so fortunate to have as our expert and guest today, Dr. Frank McAndrew, an evolutionary social psychologist who's going to define intuition, discuss why we need it, identify common errors of intuition, gender differences, the impact of misinformation mixed with intuition, and enhanced problem solving using intuition. Dr. Frank McAndrew is the Cornelia Dudley Professor of Psychology at Knox College and an elected fellow of several professional organizations, including the Association for Psychological Science. As an evolutionary social psychologist, Dr. McAndrew's research is guided by the simple desire to make sense of everyday life. His research has appeared in dozens of scientific journals. He's written for a wide range of news outlets, including Time, The Washington Post, The New Republic, The Guardian. His research has been featured in media outlets such as The New Yorker, NPR, BBC, CNN. His research has been shared on Twitter by folks like Arianna Huffington, lampooned by comedians like Conan O'Brien. He's been a frequent guest on TV and radio shows. Dr. McAndrew has lectured throughout the United States and in countries ranging alphabetically from Denmark to Tanzania. Dr. Frank McAndrew, it is my privilege to welcome you back to Psych Up Live. Well, it's my privilege to be back, Suzanne. Thank you. Okay. So let's start with intuition. What is intuition, Frank? Well, to make it sound simpler than it is, intuition is going with your gut. It's making decisions or uh, directing your behavior without consciously processing information or data that you're acting on. You're using feeling rather than thinking. Okay. Where do we come up with our intuition? What builds our intuition? How do we get this? Well, uh, psychologists like to talk about emotions in general, but intuition in particular, as something we might call evolved knowledge. Uh, Through the long history of our species, our ancestors had to deal with all kinds of problems. Some of them were problems with the physical world. Uh, You had to live your life in a way that something didn't kill you. Uh, But you also had to navigate the social world to deal effectively with other people, to be able to maintain political alliances, to attract and keep mates. And 
we basically learned from their mistakes. The people who did things well uh, passed those genes along. And so we are programmed to pay attention to some kinds of information more than others. We're programmed to remember some things better than others. We're programmed to learn to be afraid of some things more quickly than others. So um, all of that has come down through us through the ages. And therefore, uh, when we are going with our gut, we don't have to do any thinking. We don't have to devote attention to it. Now, Dan Kahneman, who wrote um, Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow, he says, intuition is nothing more and nothing less than recognizing patterns. Yes. You, okay. Talk and, a little bit about that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thinking, uh, I guess we'll think of intuition as the thinking fast part and the, what we might call analytical approach as the thinking slow part. Uh, when we're using our intuition, we're essentially recognizing patterns that, uh, have been recognized by our ancestors. And so they come sort of built into our hardware and we respond to things uh, based on those feelings that those patterns evoke in us. When we're thinking slow, on the other hand, we're trying to sort of set that aside and in some ways ignore our intuition to pay attention to the information and to try to make a rational decision. Now, I think in real life, to be effective, you have to do both of these things. Mm -hmm. If you um, just rely on your intuition and just go with your gut, you're going to fall into a lot of traps that we're going to talk about in the next hour. Uh, and you want to be aware of something that I, I guess we can call a bias blind spot. Intuition is very useful and it often is very good and uh, is helpful to us, but it does have its downfall. And uh, if you're not aware of those, you're going to be a little overconfident and make some bad decisions. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if you ignore it entirely and you're just going to be the rational agent who looks at data and makes decisions that way, you might never make decisions because there's always something else you could find out. There's always more information to be acquired. And so you may dither and be sort of indecisive. So you need to find that sweet spot. So it's not so such a bad thing to trust your gut. But you're saying it's also good to integrate incoming information. Yes, you you, you need to be aware that um, your gut isn't always giving you accurate information. Okay, so um, I, I want our listeners to know I read a blog by um, Frank in Psychology Today. It's excellent. It's five ways our intuition leads us astray. And we're going to talk about that right now. But one of the things, Frank, that you say in the blog that was intriguing to me is that for good reason, we are wired not to see the world objectively. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. And, and let me um, be a little more specific there. Uh, we're not wired to see the social world objectively. Okay. Uh, we are wired to see the physical world objectively. Some of the examples I used in that essay, uh, if you think about uh, you're out in the woods walking around and you encounter an animal. Well, if you can't tell whether that animal is a kitten or a rattlesnake, <laughs> you've got a problem. Right. Uh, if you're hiking in the mountains and you can't tell where the edge of the cliff is, you've got a problem. Uh, if I'm crossing the street in a busy city and I can't tell for sure whether there's any traffic coming my way, I have a problem. And so people who could not objectively and accurately decode what was going on out there 
in the real physical world uh, got weeded out of the population pretty quickly. On the other hand, the social world, we're not programmed to see things exactly the way they are. Rather, we're programmed to see things the way that it's going to be advantageous for us to see things. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, if you are optimistic about your future, you think all kinds of good things are going to happen and the future is going to be better than the present, you're going to be um, more motivated to persist in the face of setbacks. And uh, this will give you an advantage over people who are kind of pessimistic and think that bad things are going to happen to them. So why even try? Uh, So in some ways, it works to our advantage to uh, be a little Pollyanna-ish about our future. Mm -hmm. Um, And also, we have self-serving biases about ourselves and our groups uh, for good reason. If um, you see all kinds of flaws with your allies and the group that you're in, this could undermine your loyalty. Uh, They'll be suspicious about whether they can count on you or not. And this could result in ostracism from the group, which back in the day would have been a really serious problem. And we see that everywhere, that if you're part of a group, you believe they're the best. The teams, I don't even have to talk about the sports world and the teams and um, groups in different professions, um, age groups, racial groups. There is something that makes us believe that the group that we're with somehow is superior, better than, etc., Yes, absolutely. And and it's such an easy trap to fall into that psychologists uh, in experiments do something called the nominal group technique. They sort of randomly assign people to group A or group B, and they call one the red group and one the green group. And there's really no difference between the groups at all. But in the course of just a few minutes, people develop this sort of groupy <laughs> feeling and think of their group as better than the other group in all kinds of ways. It's just a very natural tendency that we have. So one of the things you're saying is we need intuition, but we want to be cautious about drawing conclusions. And that's why we're going to be taking a look at the kind of bias that might lead us astray. Okay. So let's take a look at some of those those errors that might actually cause us to make a decision based on intuition that really doesn't serve us well. All right. Do you have a particular bias well, in let's, mind? Let's start with um, the confusion of observations and inferences. Yes. Uh, a lot of the time we're walking around very confident that we know how things are. And sometimes what we know is based on actual information we have, but sometimes what we know is based on an assumption that we're making. And we're not really always aware of the distinction between the two. People aren't really good at making a distinction between knowing something and believing something. They kind of mix them up. And uh, a fun little demonstration I often do in my class is I hold up a piece of chalk and I ask the students, well, tell me what you know about this just by looking at it. And I get some very predictable answers. They'll say it's white. It looks like a cylinder. If you break it, I mean, if you drop it, it will break. You can write with it. And then I start to point out, well, you're not really observing all of those things. You're observing that it's white and you're observing that it's a cylinder. But you don't know that if I drop this, it will break. That's just an assumption you're making on 
believing that this is a piece of chalk. And sometimes I've done something dirty, like planted a cigarette in the chalk tray at the blackboard and picked it up. Um, <laughs> and then I crunch it up and show them that, well, this won't break if you drop it. Uh, but it, it's a way of trying to get people to understand that you make assumptions. And when you're dealing with other people, sometimes you think you know a person and that you're basing your reactions to that person on firsthand information. You've seen them behave. You've seen them um, act. But a lot of times you're relying maybe on a stereotype. You know the person's from a certain racial or ethnic group or the other of a certain age. And uh, right away, you think you know something about that individual, but you're really making assumptions based on something that you believe rather than something you know. Frank, one of the examples that pops to mind with that was when my mother, who was 90 and could probably out-talk and play cards better than most people, if we were in a physician's office or if um, someone came in, they would direct the question to me. And because, well, there was the ageism there, what mm -hmm. this 90-year-old woman, what could she know? And I would say, please don't ask me that question. She's standing, she's sitting right next to me. I think she knows better than I about this, but it would happen so often. And it is a complaint that people make assumptions based on the fact that someone's too old, they're a teenager. That means they must be in the CVS because they're going to steal something. So, I mean, those are the kinds of inferences that actually become quite cruel, dangerous. And as you say, they, they, they keep underscoring the bias. Right. And that feeds right into some of the other biases we have, uh, like confirmation bias. Um, we like to get information that confirms that we're right, that convinces us that, you know, whatever it is we believe is true. And so if you have this negative stereotype about older people not being able to think clearly or communicate well, all it takes is meeting one person who matches that stereotype. And you say, aha, I knew it. There you right. go. I'm right. And it makes the belief even stronger. And it makes you continue to go out there in the world and use this in places where you really shouldn't. Mm. Now, one thing we were talking about before the show, which um, I think is important, is in our world of social media now, once we have gone to a certain site and they are happily sending us back information, in some ways, our confirmation bias is constantly fueled. That is, I'm going to continue to get information that causes me to be have a bias against a certain group or has a bias about me a medical intervention, vaccines, whatever it happens to be. It's not even just coming upon it. But you correct me here. It's that I'm inundated with a lot of data that's going to confirm my bias. Well, and it makes you feel pretty smart, doesn't it? You log on to this uh, media site, and here are dozens and dozens and dozens of other people, some of them with some pretty good-looking credentials, who all are affirming what you believe. And so you come out of that thinking pretty well of yourself. And if all of these people, there's another bias, uh, something is called that's called false consensus. We tend to think that our views and the way we behave are typical of what a normal, decent person would do. Well, if you're in this uh, social media world and everybody else is echoing your opinions about things, that reinforces this idea that I am like most people. And this is the mainstream way of thinking. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So 
in some ways, that's where we really have the confirmation over and over again. That fits into with um, another bias you talk about, the power of the particular. That is, uh, maybe talk a little bit about where that comes from and how that works. Sure. The power of the particular is just our tendency to really be persuaded by case studies. Mm-hmm. We like stories about individuals because early on in our evolution, that was the thing that paid off. If you were going to live your entire life in this tribe of 150 or so people, you had to know all kinds of important personal information about these other people you had to deal with. You had to know who was a trustworthy, cooperative person that you could count on in times of need. You had to know who was kind of manipulative and who might stab you in the back. You had to know who had powerful friends and who didn't. And so you needed to know the story of the person. And we were drawn to that. That's one of the reasons we love gossip which is something mm-hmm. else we've talked about in another one of your episodes, right. uh, because it's so useful for us to keep up with the lives of other individuals. And we want to be able to make judgments about their character. So when we're making decisions about how things are, if we can call to mind a very vivid example, that we find much more persuasive than more abstract information. Good politicians yes. are very good at taking advantage of this. Yes, um, We just had an election, uh, and if they're talking about the economy, and one candidate gets up there and tries to make the case that the economy really is turning around, and they trot out pie charts and statistics from uh, economists, People get glassy-eyed very quickly. They're boring. They don't get the point. But the good politician stands up and says, let me tell you a story about Joe. (laughs) That's exactly right. An unemployed steel worker from Youngstown, Ohio. He had four kids. They couldn't always get enough food to eat. They were on the verge of losing their house. He'd been unemployed for almost two years. And guess what? Last week, Joe got called back to work. <laughs> you got You're it. You're going to tell me the economy is not improving, and people are suckers for this. They yep. they can see Joe, and there's not a dry eye in the house uh, when the guy's done with the the, the story. And um, if you look at the nightly news, it's yep. just one story after another about individual people, somebody yeah, who right. survived this shark attack or terrible ordeal, uh, the scandal of this politician, what the royal family is doing. It's just stories about people. Yep. I'm going to have to stop you, Frank, because we're going to have to take a break. But it's a wonderful example. Um, We're going to take a break. You've been listening to Psych Up Live. And we're here with Dr. Frank McAndrews. He's a social psychologist, evolutionary social psychologist, His research is guided by the desire to make sense of everyday life, which is just what we're doing. Um, We are talking about intuition. We're looking at the possible bias and errors that may get in the way of making the maximum use of our intuition. Much more to come. Stay with us. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Planning for college? 
Tune in to Getting In, a college coach conversation for tips, techniques, and insider perspectives. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton, a former admissions officer at the University of Pennsylvania and featuring her fellow admissions and college finance experts from Bright Horizons College Coach. The show shares what colleges are really looking for and how to highlight your hard-won achievements for the best chance at success. New episodes air every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in every Friday to get your weekend kickoff early. Join the legendary G. Keith Alexander for What's Hot Harlem America. The flagship show of the new Harlem America Digital Network has something for everyone. From the latest in entertainment to empowerment, health and wellness, and more, we'll bring you a variety of fresh viewpoints, voices, and ideas. What's Hot Harlem America with G. Keith Alexander can be heard every Friday at 1 p.m. in New York and 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. It's time to get real, discover who you are, and get the tools to navigate your life. It's time to rock your midlife with Dr. Ellen Albertson, the Midlife Whisperer. Your midlife roadmap is the blueprint you need to roll with change, transform yourself, and create a fabulous second adulthood. Get answers and solutions for whatever you're up against and transform problems into opportunities. Make your next life chapter your best chapter with Rock Your Midlife every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're here with Dr. Frank McAndrew, and we were just talking about the five ways our intuition leads us astray. As Dr. McAndrew says, there's many more than that. We're going to mention a few more, and then we're going to get into gender differences and the question of intuition and misinformation. So what about um, hindsight bias? How does that affect us in terms of intuition? Well, hindsight bias is our tendency to think that we already know something when we encounter new information. And uh, the example I like to use with this uh, is with my psychology students. They think psychology courses are going to be pretty easy because they already know a lot about people. They know how to be socially successful, and they do. Uh, They understand uh, how to read people's emotions and how to get people to do what they want in a very practical, everyday sort of way but they don't really understand what's going on psychologically to make those things happen. No student ever walks into a physics class and says to the professor, well, this is going to be really easy because I've used a lever and a pulley and I know how to catch a fly ball. And, uh, (laughs) but the principle is the same. They understand how to navigate the physical world and make it work for them, but they don't understand the science behind it. So when my students are studying for a test, for example, 
a lot of the stuff that they read in the textbook seems commonsensical to them. And they therefore think, well, I don't have to work at this very hard. I kind of understand all this. And uh, an example I used in the essay that you referred to is um, if you look at the research on why people are drawn together in romantic relationships, uh, there's a lot of information about factors that lead people to get together. But we all walk around with some common folk wisdom, things that we just know. And we have little sayings like opposites attract or birds of a feather flock together. But if you think about those two statements, they're directly opposite of each other, right? So one of them says, the people who become romantically involved with each other are the ones that are going to be drawn together in a magnetic sort of way of opposites attracting. But the birds of a feather one suggests that, you know, uh, people who are very much alike in most ways are the ones that are going to be uh, compatible and drawn together in relationships. Well, if the student hasn't taken the trouble to read the textbook and see what the research has to say about it, if I give them a test and say, which is it? Well, they're kind of stuck, right? And uh, so they think they know more than they do because things sound familiar to them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And as a result, they get the wrong answer on that particular right. study. And we do this in a lot of other areas of our life as well. We uh, we delude ourselves that we know a lot more than we do. And this leads to sort of another bias, uh, overconfidence. And there's really some interesting stuff out there. Uh, the less competent you actually are in life, the more overconfident you are. <laughs> That's very interesting, yes. And that does show up in a classroom very often. Um, it, it's interesting. Let's go to, and we both kind of agreed that this is a little bit of a myth that there are great gender differences in intuition. You know, the myth is that women use their gut, men use analysis of certain situations. But I was mentioning um, a study that actually a, another guest spoke about. It's a really, it, it's a study by uh, Christopher Allenson and John Hayes. And in their study, Frank, they studied people in business from different places, ages, stages, and career, from undergraduate business students to executives in Singapore. And with a tremendous amount of data in terms of do women or men use um, cognitive style inventories or um, do they use using a cognitive style inventory, do they use an analytic approach or more of an intuitive approach they found no differences. And it's interesting because you mentioned that the study from the studies you've been exposed to, there really is very little proof that there are very big gender differences between a tendency to use intuition. I, yes, I think that's right. Uh, the biases we're talking about and the trouble that intuition can cause for us uh, seem to be a human problem, not a male problem or a female problem. And you're right, though. There is a stereotype. Women, of course, are touchy and feely and emotional, and they don't think rationally like a man does. And the man, of course, uh, is kind of hard-headed and focused on the data and making rational decisions. But there's really very little out there to support that stereotype whatsoever. As a matter of fact, if I just think of uh, personal examples of people who brag about their intuition. I remember some people, I used to deal a lot with people in the human resources business who would uh, be responsible for hiring people for positions. And I would every once in a while hear somebody say something like, you know, 
I can shake somebody's hand and I know within a minute <laughs> whether that's the person I want to hire. And they brag about this like it's something to be proud of. But what they're really saying is, you know, I'm just too lazy to pay attention for more than a minute. So I'm going to make a decision. Uh, and the examples that pop into my head are almost always men who were the ones so that were saying that. But uh, yes, there, there seems to be very little uh, to support the idea that women rely any more on intuition than men do. My association is my father-in-law, who I loved, and you would say, I keep going down for jury duty, but they always, they never take me. And I explain to them, they, they always stop or refuse to take me when I tell them I could tell how innocent or guilty the person is because I can tell by their eyes. So that, yeah. that was a sure-cut way he never had jury duty, Frank. Yeah. Um, and he was pretty certain he can do that. So it's a little bit like you're shaking hands, fellow. Um, well, and, but we, in some ways, we kind of encourage people to act this way. Uh, look at politicians that are in the news now. I mean, we can start with Donald Trump. Um, they go with their gut. Yeah. They go with yeah. their instinct. And people seem to love that. They mm -hmm. trust their instincts. Uh, and what's one of the worst things you can accuse a politician of being? A flip-flopper, right? Mm -hmm. Somebody who, oh, I got new information, <clears throat> so I'm going to change my mind. God forbid that we should do that. Who would want to vote true. for a person like that? Yeah. That's very, very true. So let's go right into what's the connection with intuition and misinformation? Well, I think misinformation, especially the way it plays out in our uh, modern world with social media, is uh, it takes advantage of all of the worst parts of our intuition. Uh, I, I do want to remind the listeners that uh, intuition is very useful and it's there for a reason. And I'm not saying you should never rely on it. But in certain situations, and the misinformation out there is one of those, uh, it caters to the worst aspects of our intuition. So, for example, uh, if you surround yourself with people who are sharing misinformation that you desperately would like to believe, stuff that convinces you that your enemies are, in fact, evil, revolting people, you know, pedophiles that are uh, in this cabal to control the world, um, you're going to believe that stuff because that's what you want to believe. And it also... We talked a little bit before the show about uh, anti-vaxxers and the vaccine problems. Well, if you create fear in people and you have this community of individuals who share that same fear, people will disregard accurate information in the interest of erring on the side of caution. Okay, I know all these scientists say the vaccines are safe, but a couple of people in this group that I'm communicating with know somebody who died of the vaccine and mm -hmm. i don't want to take any chances that that's going to happen and we do tend to trust our opinion leaders right um you probably have people in your life that you you value their advice when it comes to financial things or medical advice or whatever it might be uh and it saves you from having to do a lot of homework if you have these people you can trust well if you're in this community of people with so-called experts that you trust that saves you from having to process a lot of information on your own. Hmm. So it's just a, yeah, it's a bad situation. You know, uh, one of the things that I came across was a study that showed us that um, emotional information, which generates a fear of harm, distracts from facts and source credibility. You know, it, in one study um, about um, health and side effects, 
um, the most anxious people were those that adhere to the misinformation. It, it's, it, it makes sense that when you're very frightened, you may not be able to weed out the new information coming through and how safe you are. I think once people feel um, fear of harm, they're not really online unless they're very well trained like a uniformed service person to integrate new information. In fact, what they said is compared to one person who is giving given misinformation, a group, if you're with a group and you have to say, how well did a group do compared to some fact checkers with trustworthy information? As soon as you put people in a group, they actually did better, Frank. And so I, when you have, when we can, when we realize the amount of anxiety generated by the media on a nightly basis, it makes a certain amount of sense that we actually foster people's embracing of misinformation. They can't take it in. That's right. Another thing that happens when your arousal levels go up (laughs) is the amount of attention that you have to uh, devote to a task or thinking about anything really narrows. Uh, So that's why if you're in a state of panic, uh, it's very difficult sometimes to think about how to do the right thing uh, because you you just don't have the attention to allocate. You're so desperate uh, to deal with the surging emotion. And that emotion can be anger. It can be fear. And so in these misinformation communities, uh, that's what it's really all about is keeping people on edge, keeping their emotions high And this is distracting, and it does prevent them from being able to focus on the logic of arguments or evaluate in any sort of rational way whether new information is good or bad. So would that that be the definition of the continued influence effect? Uh, I guess I'm not familiar with the effect by that name. Um, Maybe belief perseverance, would that be the same thing? You continue to believe something even when it's no longer... Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yes. And there's a lot of stuff that goes on with that, of course. Uh, Cognitive dissonance, which is, you know, a very old and basic psychological principle, uh, is a very powerful thing. So if you've been online for months uh, taking a political stand or being an anti-vaxxer, and now part of your reputation is tied up in this, it can be very hard with new information to say, oh, guess what? I was wrong. I didn't know what I was talking about. That goes against every impulse that we have as human beings. And so it's much easier to dismiss the new information or find fault with the people who are producing that information. It's easier to do that than to completely backtrack and embarrass yourself. And so, yes, we hang on to stuff forever. Well, what comes to mind in the alternative to that is a little bit um, about um, the ability to do the opposite, which is to think fast and think slow. And one good example, I was once at a big meeting. It was right after 9-11. Oh, no, no, it was right after a major hurricane. And they were interviewing the, um, the rescue teams that were lifting people off buildings. It was right after Katrina. And they asked one of the fire chiefs, "Um, how did you come up with the plan? What was the plan? And he said, the plan was to keep changing the plan. And this fits right in with 
another example in which they said, let's take fire chiefs, for instance. They look at a fire situation and they bring to bear on that maybe 15 years of seeing patterns. And they, their gut tells them, immediately use this approach. But as soon as they see that that approach does not work, they don't continue to hold on to that. They immediately change the plan and draw upon another plan that was used in a similar situation. So the ability, and maybe that's what we're talking about today, to flexibly take in new information, even though you have a bias, really makes you very viable in terms of problem solving in your life. That's correct. Uh, and people are very different from each other and how good they are at doing that. Uh, there's a personality trait that's pretty popular right now to study in social <laughs> psychology called intellectual humility, mm -hmm. uh, being able to admit the, to the possibility that you're wrong about something. And uh, you can be high or low with that. And if you are very low in intellectual humility, it's very difficult for you to, to change course or to admit that you were wrong about something. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So in, in some ways, the question becomes, humility maybe is actually a very key term. How do we help people and how do we help ourselves um, know when what we're hanging on to may actually not be valid, does it mean, for instance, and this is hard, looking at turning on a different channel, um, talking to a different person than we usually talk with? I mean, what would you suggest to students who are asking, well, how do we prevent ourselves from hanging on to misinformation? Yeah. And uh, if I had the answer to that, I'd be collecting my Nobel Prize. Um, but it, it, it's very difficult because it, it runs counter to all of our impulses. People are not motivated to find out that they're wrong about something. They're not motivated to find out that their worldview is incorrect. And as soon as you put them in a situation, okay, I'm going to watch a different channel, I'm going to talk to different people, right away, they automatically lapse into the, let me find fault with this other point of view. Let me, let me discover the errors or, um, you know, get to the, you know, dismiss what I'm hearing that I don't like. Um, one of the other reasons misinformation works is uh, people don't like to have their worldviews challenged because it's not usually just a question of, am I right or wrong about something? People can perceive it as an attack on who they are. Yes. Their um, intelligence, their religious views, whatever it might be. So if somebody's telling them they're wrong about something, what they're hearing is, I think you're a stupid person. I think you're an evil person. And that you're not going to get very far with that. So one of the things we need to do is somehow get around that problem. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things I think we're hinting at, and I want to make sure our listeners sort of underscore this, we're not saying throw out the intuition and just go with the facts. In fact, we probably need a combination of them. I had mentioned to Frank before the show. So in an example of an economist who's working with a young a team of fairly uh, younger, uh, less experienced um, um, folks, um, 
He says their need for certainty sometimes freezes them. They have to, it's a little bit like what what you mentioned earlier. They have to have the data. They don't, they're not yet sure enough that they could use their gut. And by their gut, we'll say patterns of information that may not even be so conscious, but they're there. And so they get so locked into the data that they end up making mistakes because they can't relax and use the kind of um, unconscious knowing that sometimes comes with intuition. Yes, that that's right. And um, and if you get stuck in that uh, way of thinking, you will never get to the point where you feel like you're ready to act. Right. You want like like I actually like physicians who say to me, "I want to think outside the box on this." That's a good thing. Yes. I don't. I don't want to be pigeonholed. You know. Yep. Yeah. Um, but we certainly do like to confirm, confirm, confirm. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, another little demonstration I have fun with in my classes is I, I'll put three numbers on the board. Let's say two, four, six. And I'll tell the students, these three numbers conform to a rule. Uh, what I'd like you to do, and I'll have somebody volunteer, is give me other examples of three numbers, and I'll tell you whether they conform to that rule or not. Now, in reality, the rule is simply three numbers in increasing uh, size. So even though it says 246, 117, 300 would work, as long as each number is bigger than the one before. But without fail, the students always say, okay, uh, 12, 14, 16, 20, 22, 24. And we could go on for days and days and days, and they could generate an infinite number of examples that would all conform to the rule. And that convinces people they're right. All they have to try to do to figure out if they're right or not, is disprove the rule. Try to find mm -hmm. information that would show you you're wrong, and we just don't do it. It's interesting, very interesting. So we're going to take um, a brief break at this point. Um, uh, you've been listening to Psych Up Live. I'm here with Frank McAndrews. We're talking about intuition. We're talking about why we need it. But we're also talking about, as Frank says, confirm, confirm, confirm. Can we mix data and a reliance on hard facts with the intuition that we use to protect ourselves? Stay with us. More to come. We'll be right back. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Glow and Tell is the new provocative podcast from beauty expert, spa owner, and product junkie, Carolyn Holdsworth. The Southern-raised entrepreneur will share her unvarnished opinions on self-care and all things that are meant to glow, inside and out. Carolyn will be joined by guest experts who will go deep, and listeners will discover and discuss plenty about what they see and feel in the mirror each day. Questions and answers will wrap each podcast with no topics out of bounds. Don't miss Glow and Tell with Carolyn Holdsworth, Wednesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Do you ever have an off day? Or is your life positive and uplifting? Making Life Brighter is a forum for positive, 
inspired, and contemplative thought, showcasing experts in their fields, including authors, musicians, and artists. Your host, Winifred Adams, will bring to life topics to stimulate and make your life brighter. We want to hear from you. Be sure to tune in Thursdays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. As humans, we suffer when we believe we are not good enough. We are taught we must be better, look better, try harder, and achieve more. We cope with the stress and disappointment of life in ways that make us feel worse and keep us stuck in a cycle of unworthiness. We don't have to live this way. You don't have to live this way. Kirsten and her guests will share how self-acceptance and unconditional self-love can help you break this cycle and find freedom. Listen to Giraffe Tango Octopus, Freedom for Humans, with Kirsten Johansson, Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're here with social psychologist Frank McAndrews, and we're asking how do we make the best use of our intuition we've been talking about um the balance of intuition and confirming data and we're going to go back to a, a real major trap i'll say uh, it's called the fundamental attribution error and it's something we all get caught in and maybe we'll look a little closer at it let's talk about the fundamental attribution error frank Okay. Um, well, it's called the fundamental attribution error because it's such a standard uh, thing that we all do without being aware of it. Um, in a nutshell, what the fundamental attribution error is, is our tendency to hold other people more responsible for their behavior than we probably should. Um, if you think about the different reasons why behavior occurs. Lots of times it's happening because of forces beyond your control, right? You're in a situation where the pressures of the situation or other forces at work uh, are kind of forcing you to do one thing rather than another. But when we're making judgments about other people's behavior, we tend to attribute the cause of their behavior to some internal quality of that person, their personality, or their intentions. And so we praise people uh, more than we probably should when good things happen as a result of their behavior, but we probably blame them more than we should as well when bad things occur as a result of their behavior. And it's very interesting how strongly we do this when we're making judgments about other people. When we're making judgments about ourselves, however, we're much more likely to have external explanations for our behavior, especially if there have been bad consequences from that behavior. So if you've done something at work that's caused trouble for people and you're confronted um, about that, you're likely to have all kinds of explanations like, I really didn't have much choice. I was just doing what I was told. I couldn't help it. It wasn't my fault. Uh, you're giving all kinds of blame to other circumstances. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but if your coworker is the one who did the thing that caused trouble, well, he's just a jerk. That's just the kind of person he is. He wanted to cause trouble. He likes chaos. Uh, we're much quicker to uh, blame the individual. I think there are a couple of different reasons why this happens. Uh, first of all, we want to understand our social world, which means we want to understand what makes individuals tick. So if I'm trying to figure somebody out, it doesn't help me very much if I'm drawing conclusions like, oh, well, that person didn't have any choice in how they would behave. They were just reacting to the situation. I want to feel like I know something about the person. So I'm motivated to find a personality trait in there somewhere that will explain what I'm seeing. But also, it's it's a question of where our attention is focused. If I see somebody else behaving, my attention is focused on them. So when I'm looking for a cause for that behavior, I'm naturally going to look for that cause in the place where my attention is focused, on the person. Mm-hmm. Whereas if I'm trying to explain my own behavior, I'm not seeing myself. My attention is focused on the world around me. I'm much more aware of the situation. So I'm aware of external forces acting on me much more than I'm aware of them acting on other people. And there have been some very interesting and quite old experiments that show if you change somebody's focus of attention, you can change the kind of attributions they make. So, for example, if you simply put somebody in a room where they're surrounded by mirrors, where everywhere they look, they see themselves, they now start to give more internal explanations for their own behavior. Or if you ask them to write a little essay about themselves where they reflect on the kind of person they are and then put them in a situation where they perform in some way, they now have more internal explanations for their behavior. This is something called the actor-observer difference. Mm. You know, I can really see this in terms of couple behavior, um, Mm -hmm. where we'd invite couples to put themselves in the other's shoes. I mean, we can – so imagine they're going on the trip and – they start off and there's no, they're, they're almost on empty. They just started off. And whoever is driving is the other person sitting next to them is saying, what kind of a planner leaves for a family trip with an empty, a, a car with no gas? And so, but if the reverse were true, they might say, oh, the car, the car, we really are not going to have enough gas. I don't, I couldn't get to this. All right, we're going to pull into a station. So the idea of, you know, not being able to put yourself in the shoes of the other person fuels the attribution error. Absolutely, it does. Yep. Yeah, and I like I like that example. Well, I, I knew we had to get gas, but there wasn't time. Uh, you know, the weather was bad. <laughs> You've got all these explanations. But if it's your partner that didn't do it, well, yeah, come on now. The, the other example I have that has to, it has to do with worrying with couples, that is, if I see that my partner is worried, we know that people will say, you love to worry. You look for things to worry. Mm-hmm. But if I have a worry, then it's a different story. It's not that I like to worry or look for things to worry. So it's an, it's a very interesting um, uh, era that really is enhanced when we don't put ourselves in that other person's shoes. And, and it can be, you know, it influences racism, ageism, sexism. It really is something that um, can be corrosive to groups as well as couples. Right. And you're never really going to eradicate these things. But I think one of my goals as an educator dealing with students who are taking psychology classes is to at least make them aware 
of the problem. Uh, make them less smug about trusting their intuition. Not to throw their intuition out, but I try to make the case that you're going to be a better person. Uh, you're going to make the best use of your intuition by being aware of its shortcomings. Pretending that your intuition is perfect isn't going to work as well for you. You know, there's a Seinfeld episode that turns this upside down. George, the character of George, who's always never working, is working for the allegedly for the Yankees. His car is parked in the parking lot, but if he's upstate somewhere on vacation, well, they attribute to him a very positive thing. They see when they drive in in the morning, his car is there. They see when they go home at night, his car is there. And you hear them say, you know, this guy's working around the clock. We ought to give this guy a raise. You know, and it, it, as you see in the sitcom, eventually ducks have landed on the car. There are flies on the car. But they attribute something about themselves and something positive to a crazy situation. I remember that episode. Um, <laughs> yes, that's a, that's an excellent example. Yeah. So I think this works also with children in terms, especially teens, in terms of getting themselves into crazy situations Often not knowing what will happen, you know, in in fact, if they go into a, a concert without their ID, with someone who has, you know, um, weed on them or whatever it happens to be, um, I think that people can be hard on teens when they're negotiating the world, <laughs> very often using their gut and not using the facts. Yes, and really all you need to do is try to remember your 17-year-old self, um, which we're not always very good at doing. Yeah. So if you were to give our audience some steps to really make the best use of their intuition, Frank, what would we say? Well, I think I would start by saying your intuition is there for a reason. Uh, it can serve you well, but it isn't perfect. And just being aware of that and being a little more willing to entertain the possibility that sometime you might be wrong about something will force you to take that extra step. Let me take another look at the data. Let me get another opinion. Uh, and instead of just thinking fast with your intuition, switch back and forth. Let the thinking fast start the process then check out for a while and think slow by looking at data and then see if you can bring these two things together. Okay. Um, now, you have written so much, including the blog that was the trigger for this show. How could our guests find you, Frank, um, on Psychology Today um, as well as on your site? Well, I do have a webpage, uh, frankmcandrew.com. And if you go there, You'll find way more about me than you would ever want to know. <laughs> uh, but there are also links to um, some media things that I've done. You can also get uh, copies of my publications and so forth. Uh, I'm also available on a lot of social media, uh, Twitter, at uh, FT McAndrew, uh, although who knows what's going to happen with Twitter in the very near future. Right. And, uh, of course, I do blog for Psychology Today magazine. So if you were to just Google Frank McAndrew, Psychology Today, uh, my blog page will come up. And, um, yes, so I'm easy to find. Okay. I want to thank you again, Frank, for joining us on Psych Up Live. Your continued research and writing on so many topics and the way you share them with our audience is a real gift. Thank you again for coming on Psych Up Live. 
Thank you so much. I want to thank my listeners. Remember, you can hear this and any prior show as a podcast on my host site, my website, and on the podcast app that you use by this evening, uh, 6 p.m. Eastern. This will be on the platforms of iPhone, iTunes, Stitcher, Apple, Amazon Audible, etc. Remember, until next week, stay safe, enjoy the upcoming holidays, and keep listening. Thank you for tuning in to Psych Up Live. Please join Dr. Suzanne Phillips for another edition of our programming next Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until then, be well and be listening.